In the health world, there are a lot of claims for uh, remedies that fix everything, right? Uh, maybe you're suffering from an ailment and you've done a quick Google search before to try to see, hmm, what would help with this ailment? And along with the popular health websites, there also come up, you know, the other uh, home nutrition sites, and we soon discover vitamin C fixes everything, right? Uh, or some would claim. Or maybe it's vitamin D that fixes everything, or why not just take them both and uh, fix everything that way? Well, there are other claims out there. came across one that claimed uh, Windex was a good remedy for everything. Uh, no, not drinking Windex, but, you know, you got a bruise here, put some Windex on it. you got an ailment here, put some Windex on it. Please do not try that one at home. There are many claims as to what might solve all our problems. In the Christian life, sometimes we, we look for such resolution, right? We, we seek that help. And yet, the thing that will really help us in every category of the Christian life is sometimes the last thing we think of, because it's what maybe led us to Christ, but then we kind of grow out of it. We move on, and oh, I need more mature solutions to my problems now at this point. But the reality is, God uses the foundational truth of the gospel not only to bring us to salvation in Christ, but to grow us in the Christian life. And so, without a shadow of a doubt, I can fill in the blank this way this morning. Are you struggling with discontentment? You need gospel truth in your life. Are you struggling with guilt and condemnation on your shoulders? You need gospel truth in your life. Are you struggling with worry about the future and what's going to happen and how it's going to unfold? You need gospel truth in your life. Are you struggling with sin, maybe even an addiction that you're having trouble overcoming? You need gospel truth in your life. Are you struggling with grief? You need gospel truth in your life. However it is that we are stalled in the Christian life and facing difficulty, friends, we need to lean in to the truths of the gospel, those very truths by which God grows us, not only in faith in Christ, but in the Christian life altogether. I'm not saying we don't need the rest of the Scriptures. Certainly we need all of the Word of God, but Gospel truth becomes the lens through which we read the words of God. Because it's through the gospel lens we understand that this is not some book about some God far away, but about the God who gave His life for me. The God who wants to bring these words to bear on my life today. The God who is present no matter what I've done because my sins were paid for on the cross of Jesus Christ. The God whose steadfast love will never change, not because I'm worthy, but in my unworthiness because Christ has purchased God's faithfulness to me through His death and resurrection. That when I face grief and despair and a loss of hope in the future, I can remember that there's one who rose again. And that in the gospel, I am united to this one who conquered sin and death and my destiny is forever with him. See, gospel truth is powerful. As we consider this text today, you're going to be able to listen to Paul's sermon, which is one of the richest gospel sermons in the New Testament. It's beautiful. And he points us to a number of Old Testament passages showing how the, the work of Christ fulfills the promise of God. And, and then we see in that closing section, after the sermon is done, we see two responses. We'll see some who reject the gospel and even begin to persecute them so much that they have to leave the town. But God uses even that to spread the gospel and grow the church. <laughs> On the other hand, you have those who receive the gospel. They trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the followers of Christ are then filled with joy and filled with the Holy Spirit. God grows His church 
as we share the gospel of Jesus Christ with all people. It's not just for the Jews. It's not just for those who are worthy. This gospel message, this good news about Jesus Christ is for everyone. And it's the means by which God grows the church, not just numerically. We, we think of it in terms of that most often. That's how people come to Christ, and it's true. I don't want to diminish that today, but also it's how He grows us spiritually. It's how He matures us in Christ. And so in every sense of church growth, the gospel becomes the key. This is how God works So let's dig into this rich text and consider how this message of the gospel is so important to us. We get to observe as Paul and Barnabas continue their travels. You may remember from last week, they were on the island of Cyprus preaching the gospel. And you're going to notice in this text, it's this message, this word, this preaching that's the focus of their ministry. In fact, even as they're in the synagogue, they're asked to speak a word to the people, a message of exhortation. In fact, this phrase, a word of salvation, or the word of the Lord, or the word of God, that phrase, starting with that word, the word of the Lord, the word of God, the message of salvation, is repeated many times throughout this passage. Verse 15, verse 26, verse 42, 44, 46, 48, 49. I mean, this is the focus of this text, the gospel the message of salvation. Number one, in the opening here, we're going to see that God works through His Word and the events of history as spoken by God point to Jesus as Savior. God's Word and works through history point to Jesus as Savior. Let's catch up with Paul and Barnabas there in verse 13. Paul and his party, notice Paul's kind of in the lead now, they set sail from Paphos. And so let's remember our map. We looked at this a little bit last week, where they're headed. Paphos is this city on the southwest of the island of Cyprus. Remember they landed uh, on the city of Salami, or Salamis as it's better pronounced, on the eastern side of the island. And they traveled about 100 miles west across the island to Paphos, and then they set sail from Paphos up to this region here. They landed on the coast and eventually went to this city called Perga in the region of Pamphylia. And so that's where we encounter them there in verse uh, 13. It's there, while they're in Perga, still near the coast, that the young man, John Mark, decides to head back to Jerusalem. And at this point, we don't know the reasons for that. Uh, Paul later looks back on this with kind of a, a negative sense of what happened here. And so whether Mark wore out or was just whatever, I, I, Paul refers to it later as he, he deserted us, he left us. And so, again, we don't know all that happened, uh, but this is where John Mark leaves them and goes back to his home in Jerusalem, remember, uh, where they were praying in the house of his mother, Mary, okay? Kind of taking us back to some of the context here. So they do some ministry in Perga. We don't know all about what happens there, but from there they travel north to the Pisidian Antioch. And it's another town named Antioch. Uh, I don't remember exactly the name of the guy, but there was some conqueror who went through that region who named a bunch of cities. I think there's a total of eight of them after his father, whose name was Antiochus. And so there's a bunch of Antiochs uh, in that region. So you, you may remember we've already encountered an Antioch. So this one is often called the Pisidian Antioch because it's in the region of Pisidia. Okay, so there they are in another Antioch. And we learn in verse 14 that they go to the synagogue, which we're beginning to see is sort of their custom, is sort of how they operate. They begin at the synagogue where religion is already talked about, and hopefully they have the opportunity to talk about Jesus Christ as Messiah. This time they go on the Sabbath, the day of worship. And so they go for the worship service. And we can sort of imagine Paul and Barnabas in a Jewish worship service there in the synagogue. And as we learn uh, in verse 15, uh, there's a reading of the law and the prophets. History tells us that it was their custom to read a section of Scripture from both sections of the Bible. The law, referring to the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, and the prophets, referring to, you guessed it, 
the prophets, right? So they would read a section from uh, both parts of the Old Testament. And then following that reading, there was often an exhortation. Somebody would stand up and speak about what was read. Not too far from what we do today, is it? To read the Word and then an exhortation from the Word. So in this case, the rulers of the synagogue in Antioch notice that Paul and Barnabas are the guests there. And so they go to them and say, would you like to give the word of exhortation? Now, guests, uh, rest easy. I'm not going to come to you today and ask you to step up here and give the word of exhortation from the passage. I plan to do that today, so you can rest easy, at least for today. Maybe next week uh, we'll give you that opportunity. No, I'm teasing. We don't really do that today, Uh, but this was kind of a kind gesture to the guests to say, hey, is there something you'd like to say about the text that was read? And you can almost imagine Paul just eagerly responding here, you know, like, uh, Yeah, I got things to say. (laughs) And so Paul takes the platform and he stands up in verse 15, or 16, excuse me, motions with his hands, points to the crowd that's there in the synagogue, and refers to them, men of Israel and you who fear God. Okay, so he's addressing them. And already we sense there's two groups in the room. There are the descendants of Israel looking all the way back. This would be Jews by heritage. Of course, Everybody there is of the Jewish faith, of religion. That's why they're at the synagogue, right? So he's speaking to those who are descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So those of you of Israel, then he says something else. Also, verse 16, you who fear God. This was a way of referring to proselytes, those who were not Jews by heritage, but had become Jews in religion. They'd converted to Judaism. So those are our two main groups, and they'll be referred to different ways throughout our text. His message begins in verse 17. He begins by recounting their history. And again, we won't study every detail, every point that Paul makes. But as we listen to this, I want you to imagine the Jewish people in the synagogue there listening along and sort of nodding along with Paul. This is where he's, he's relating to his audience and he's tracking the history of the people of Israel. And just notice some of the highlights beginning in verse 17. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers, so he's thinking back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the promise of God, God's choice to be good to them and to bless them. We can think of Genesis 12 and the blessing of Abraham. And he goes on to talk about the time that they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt and that God redeemed them out of Egypt. Verse 18, the 40 years in the wilderness where God was faithful to them. Verse 19, God uh, helped them in the conquest of the land and the distribution of the land to them. Again, all of these are fulfillments of God's promise to Abraham. Verse 20, after that period, there's about 450 years, and we don't know for sure, but that 450 years could be looking back at the time in Egypt, including the wilderness and the conquest, which adds up to about 450 years, or it could be looking at the time of the judges, which, as far as we can tell, was also about 450 years. At any rate, that ends with Samuel, when the people of God ask for a king for themselves, and God again is faithful. God gives them Saul to be king. Saul, uh, well, to be harsh, fails at his task, and so he's removed. Verse 22, then God raised up David to be king, and David was special, as Samuel testified. David is a man after God's own heart. So you can imagine, they're all kind of nodding along. This is pretty plain Jane history of Israel here, as Paul highlights the faithfulness of God through their history, and, and the Israelites in the room, and the, the converts are all kind of nodding along, yes, yes, amen, yes, God is faithful. And, you know, who knows what Old Testament passage they had read, but it wouldn't surprise me, maybe Genesis 12 and the promise of God to Abraham, and so Paul's kind of walking through God's faithfulness to that promise. Yes, yes, nodding along. Then comes verse 23. From this man's seed, now it's David is the most recent man we're talking about here. From this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior. Now they might even be nodding along here, except for that it's past tense. Raised up? Wait a second. Things really get rough at the end of verse 23. 
Jesus. God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus. And now you can kind of see the heads tilt a little bit in the room. Uh, We were with you. I'm not so sure about this Jesus thing. And so they're kind of, you know, the nodding has stopped. As a speaker, uh, it's pretty easy to tell what's going on in the room. You can tell when people are with you. Right? There are smiles and nods and people are tracking along. It's also easy to tell when they're not with you anymore. This is that moment as Paul is speaking to these Israelites and they're kind of, mm, yes, yes, faithfulness of God. Mm, yeah. mm? <laughs> Jesus? I don't know about this. So now Paul has kind of become the adversary. Now they're listening to see what is this that he's saying and they're curious to know how Paul's going to tell them how Jesus is this Messiah. He jumps then in verse 24 to John, and this is an interesting move. But many of the Jews in this day actually did recognize John as a true prophet. Now, he's not included in the Old Testament, so Paul is now jumping to present-day events But he's mentioning somebody that they could have started nodding to again. Most of them recognized that John the Baptist was a prophet. In fact, they so recognized him that many even asked him if he was the Messiah. And that's what what Paul references here. He says in verse 23 and excuse me, 24 and 25, John first preached before his coming the baptism of the repentance. John was preparing the way for the Messiah. Verse 25, as John was finishing his course, he said, who do you think that I am or what do you think that I am? And he just said it plainly. I am not he. I'm not the savior that you're looking for. It's not me. There is one coming whose sandal straps I'm not worthy to loose. This great prophet, John the Baptist, whom these Jews likely would have recognized, said himself, I'm so lowly before him, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. And Paul's reminding them it was this Jesus. They could think back, who was it that John pointed to? Who was it that John told them to look to when he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It was Jesus. It was Jesus. So it's a beautiful use of Israel's history here, walking through how God's word and God's works in history have all been pointing to Jesus. He wants these Jews to believe, to trust in Christ. God's word and God's works through history point to Jesus as Savior. When uh, Carrie and I were traveling to Brazil, uh, we encountered a lot of interesting things, fun things. One of the more nerve-wracking experiences is actually going through customs, both on the way there and on the way back. You just never know what's going to happen. Are they going to let me in? Are they going to you know, rip apart my bags and take my things? Or, you know, whatever. You just imagine all of these possible scenarios. And so it tends to be a tense time in general. We remember waiting in one customs line. We were, we were talking about this this morning and trying to remember where it was or what exactly the signs said, and we couldn't determine it for sure. But I, I think it was something along these lines. We were waiting in the passport line uh, to go up to the booth where you show them your passport. They check with the computer to make sure you're not a terrorist or something else or whatever. And even though I know I'm not, it's still nerve-wracking somehow uh, as you get up there to that place in line. And so we're waiting in line. And in this specific area, this line, there were signs all over the place that were, were reminding of the same thing. All the signs were the same. And to to my recollection, they said something like, please have your passport ready. You know, please have your passport ready. And you'd come around the the weaving corner to the next line and please have your passport ready. And you come to the next spot. Please have your passport ready. And I turned to Carrie at one point and I was like, do you think we should have our passports ready? (laughs) There were so many signs. Well, there was no question There was no question whether we should have our passports out and ready to show to the person at the uh, the booth. Now, we got up there, and he was just kind of this happy-go-lucky guy, had a nice conversation about our trip, and we moved on. I was like, oh, well, that was easy enough, right? It wasn't so bad. 
But we were just uh, kind of laughing to each other. It sort of brought a lighthearted moment in the midst of a tense situation. That All these signs, please have your passport ready. Okay, I got it. I got it. I'm holding it right here. I'm ready to see the person in the booth. That many signs made it obvious to us what we needed to do in order to get through the line. How we needed to be prepared to pass the test and be, and be allowed entrance into the country. Could you say there were too many signs? Well, maybe, but at least it was obvious what we needed to do. This is sort of what the Apostle Paul is doing as he walks through the history of Israel in the Old Testament. He's kind of raising all these signs and reminding them, look, you see God's promise here, and you see God's promise here, and remember what he said to Abraham, and remember what he said to David, and remember what he said here. He's fulfilling his promise to send a Savior. And even through John the Baptist, it's all pointing to Jesus. Jesus. He's trying to make it obvious to them that Jesus is God's Messiah. This is what they are to learn. In the end, God's Word, all through even the history of Israel, are preparing His people for the coming of the Messiah. Scripture points to Jesus. He's the one. He's the one God was preparing us for. How exactly does Scripture point to Jesus? Well, sometimes it's explicit through prophecy that predict who He is and what He's going to do. Sometimes it's implicit, like the sacrifices, for instance, that get us thinking along the lines that, ah, sin demands a payment, but but somehow the payment of animals is not enough because it has to keep happening and has to keep happening and has to keep happening. These things prepare us for Jesus. But then there's a sense in which we can really begin to view all of Scripture through the gospel lens. Let me explain what I mean by this. See, the more we learn about God, the more we read Scripture and understand what He's like, we see His holiness, or we see His faithfulness, like Paul pointed out in his sermon here. Our view of God grows. God's not getting any higher, but our understanding of Him is growing, and our gaze, our view of Him is lifted higher and higher as God gets holier and holier in our view, right? Other times in Scripture, not only are we learning more about God, but we're learning more about us. And, and our sin is revealed, right? Read Leviticus or read through Israel's history or read through some of the New Testament where our, our sins are pointed out and our view of ourselves begins to diminish. We see how sinful we are. And it's not that we're becoming more sinful, but it's that we're gaining a more realistic view of how sinful we really are before God. But a couple things happen as we study the Word, as God, in our view, is holier and holier and holier, we understand more of what He's truly like, and we go down, we're more sinful and more sinful, we understand more fully the thing that spans the gap between us. The One, the Savior, Jesus Christ, is God who became man so that He could bring us to God. You see, the gospel, the, the, the cross, is the work of Christ which spans the gap between the infinitely glorious and holy God and our sinfulness. So every time we read the scriptures, the gospel increases our amazement of what God has done for us. So, so then I'm not just simply reading a passage about God's faithfulness, but I'm reading a passage that reminds me that a faithful God came and saved me from my sin and holds me in Jesus Christ. You see, the gospel brings really all of Scripture to light because we begin to see what it was that spanned the gap between this infinitely holy God and my incredible sin. Consider the message of Scripture pointing to the work of Jesus Christ, Jesus as Savior. Do we know the Word? 
Do we understand the way the word points to the Lord Jesus Christ and highlights the amazing worth of the gospel for us? I wonder if we were in the synagogue that day invited to share a word of exhortation about the the covenant with Abraham or, you know, whatever it was that they read that day. I wonder if you and I could have made a beeline to Jesus the way the Apostle Paul did. Do we know our scriptures? Do we understand how they point us to the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, this is not the end of Paul's sermon. He continues on in verse 26. And as we study this section, we're going to learn secondly today that God fulfilled His promised salvation through the death and resurrection of Jesus. This is a fulfillment. So far, we've been looking at the promise of God and the prophecies of God. The key word in this section is the word fulfillment. That in Jesus, God fulfilled His Word. Let me get it up there for you. God fulfilled His promised salvation through the death and resurrection of Jesus. We know this is sort of a a transition in His sermon because He addresses them again in verse 26. Men and brethren, the two groups become apparent one more time. Sons of the family of Abraham, those are the descendants of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, those are the converts to Judaism. He says it clearly at the end of verse 26, To you, the word of this salvation has been sent. Now we're going to move quickly again through this section, but I want to pause to point something out. Paul says here, the word, the message of this salvation. And it's interesting to reflect on that. It's a word that means the word. It's in Greek, maybe you've heard it before, logos. But there's something interesting about that word. It does mean message or or word, but it's also the word used to describe the Lord Jesus Christ in John chapter 1. The word was God, and the word was with God. And so it's almost as if Paul is saying that this message of salvation embodied in the very person of Jesus Christ was sent to you. He came. He came. Part of the reason I think that is because in these following verses, he begins to refer back to it with the masculine pronoun, he. Notice what he says in verse 27. For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know him. Him, the message of salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ. They did not know him, but there's something else they did not know. They did not know the word of the prophets which was read every Sabbath. Here's where Paul's listeners are kind of like, okay, buddy. (laughs) You're saying we're not listening to the prophets? We read them every Sabbath. Paul's acknowledging that. Those who rejected Jesus rejected Him because they did not know the word of the prophets, which were read every Sabbath. They didn't see the signs of God that Jesus is the Messiah. So in verse 28, Paul highlights Jesus' innocent death. He had done nothing wrong. This makes him the perfect sacrifice for sins, the perfect Messiah. Verse 29, he highlights, again, there's that key word, fulfilled. He highlights that Jesus' death fulfilled prophecy. Even back in verse 27, we saw that even the resistance of the Jews fulfilled prophecy. They became the ones who God had prophesied would reject their Savior. So this is about God fulfilling His Word. Verse 30 is this beautiful truth. Even though they put Him to death, but God raised Him from the dead. Jesus did not stay in His tomb. It was all a fulfillment of prophecy, all a fulfillment of what God had said He would do. And so in verse 32, Paul says, We declare to you the glad tidings. We are witnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ. That phrase, declare the glad tidings, is a phrase that becomes common in the New Testament. It means to preach the gospel. Uh, It's related to our word today, evangelism or evangelize. Here he is. He's preaching the good news to them. God has fulfilled His promise for us, His children, verse 33, in that He raised up Jesus. 
Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promised salvation. The Apostle Paul quotes a few psalms here. First, Psalm 2, verse 7. This prophecy that the Messiah would be called the Son of God. Ah, that makes us think of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then in verse 34, he quotes Isaiah 55, verse 3. Again, speaking of the Messiah, uh, Isaiah is saying here, I will give you the sure mercies of David. So this Messiah would be given the sure mercies of David. What are the sure mercies of David? Well, it's a word that can be translated blessings. It could be translated covenant promises, covenant love. I think it's referring to the promise God gave to David in 2 Samuel 4, 12-14, where God promised David that somebody from his line, a son of David, would be given the throne of David, and that that kingdom would endure forever. So here, this Messiah would be given the promise of David, this eternal kingdom, And so then we begin thinking, well, could it have been David? No, it could not have been David. That's where Paul goes next, verse 35. God said about the Messiah in Psalm 1610 that this Messiah would not be allowed to see corruption. And so in verse 36, Paul argues that David saw corruption. He's dead and buried and his body has decayed. So it's not David. But there's one who was raised from the grave, a son of David, a son of God, who is the true Messiah. And by his resurrection, verse 37, God proved that this Jesus is the fulfillment of his promise. He is the Messiah. God fulfilled his promised salvation through the death and resurrection of Jesus. I'm not very good at following directions. It's not that I have like no sense of direction. Usually I can kind of figure out which way north, south, east, and west are, if you give me a moment. Uh, But I really struggle with landmark directions. Some of you get around that way, and and that's okay. That's great. I I just don't operate that way, but you you remember how to get places by remembering, oh, well, yeah, you turn right at the red barn, and then you turn left at the yellow mailbox, and it all works out pretty well. Well, I really struggle with those kinds of directions. Here's what happens when I follow those kinds of directions. You start driving down the road, you know, scanning the horizon for red barns. You see a red barn. Ah, could that be the red barn? Oh, but wait a second. There's another red barn. Is that the red barn? Well, they said turn left. Did they say the barn was on the right side or the left side? Of the road? I don't remember. How big was the red barn? I'm not sure. All these questions start popping up in my head, Right? Now I've passed five red barns, and it's time to turn around and go back, because one of these red barns was the right red barn. How do I find the red barn? And then there's the yellow mailbox. Well, what shade of yellow was it? That's orange to me. That's not yellow. Do I turn at this mailbox, or do I keep going? Will there be a yellower mailbox coming up, right? This is really how my brain works. So if you're ever giving me directions, uh, just give me the address, I'll use GPS, and we'll, <laughs> we'll do it that way. All these questions rise up because I have trouble following the landmarks, trouble interpreting what they mean. I can be a little bit too analytical about the instructions. Here, Paul makes clear that Jesus fulfilled the Word of God exactly, like without question. I mean, it wasn't like, which red barn are we talking about? It was like, he will be in the grave three days and then he will rise. And that's exactly what happened. That on the cross, he would ask for gall to drink. And sure enough, that's what happened. You see, there's any number of prophecies we could look to, to show this, but God predicted in advance what would happen with the Savior And it all happened exactly as he said. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of God's promises. There's no questioning. There's no wondering. Is it this red barn? No, it's clear as day. There's no other like him in the history of the world. It's Jesus. It would be enough if all he did would rise from the dead, but it's not just his resurrection. It's that he fulfilled Tons of prophecies from the Old Testament. 
And so, friends, we need to remember that this death and resurrection of Christ is the fulfillment of God's promise, and that helps us as we try to know the gospel and be prepared to share the gospel. That our sin separated us from a holy God. That Jesus' sinless life made Him the perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God, to pay for the sins of the world. That He rose again from the dead just as He said, signifying His victory over sin and death and the complete satisfaction of God's wrath. That all who trust in the One who died and rose again receive forgiveness of sins and the righteousness of God. So we come to the third section of the sermon here. Here we see that God offers salvation only through Jesus, only those to those who believe. Yes, it's an offer to everybody, but it's only applied to those who trust in Jesus. Notice what the Apostle Paul says. Verses 38 and 39 are two of the most beautiful gospel verses in the New Testament. These are rich Here Paul says, Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Did you catch that? That is rich truth. Only through this Jesus is offered the forgiveness of sins to everyone who would believe. And by Him, they receive justification. That means to be declared righteous. From what? All things. Every evil deed that the law could never do. The law doesn't make us righteous. The law points out our sin. Our works cannot make us righteous. Think of it. Even if you could do all the good works that existed, you would never attain to the infinite righteousness of God. That kind of righteousness can only be given. And the only way it's given is by faith in the Son of God, who died for our sins and rose again. Complete forgiveness of sins and the righteousness of God by faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. But it's only through Jesus, and it's only by faith. This is a powerful text reminding us of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul shares this beautiful gospel in verses 38 and 39, but follows it up with a warning in verses 40 and 41, where he says, Beware, lest the prophecy of God be made true of you, because God had at one time predicted in Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 5, that there would be those who see this incredible work of God, the work of salvation, that God would die for sinners and rise from the grave. They would see this work, as verse 41 says, and they would reject it. They would not believe. So we already know that there will be some who reject, and so now Paul is pleading with them, saying, don't become one of the rejecters. See the work of God and trust in Jesus Christ today. There, the sermon ends. Paul has shared the gospel and encouraged them to trust in Christ by reminding them that God offers salvation only through Jesus and only those who believe all their law-keeping would not be enough. Maybe you're here today. And you need to trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ in your place on the cross. To trust in the one who died for you and rose again as the way of salvation. The only way for your sins to be forgiven and for you to receive the righteousness of God. So that you can then be in right relationship with God and have confidence of eternal life with Him. You can do that today. Maybe you're here today and you've trusted in Christ as Savior and are not 
leaning on that forgiveness of sins, but trying to impress God with your works and your righteousness. Lean back again on the gospel truths to trust that the work of Christ is all you need to be accepted by God. God offers salvation only through Jesus and only to those who believe. Number four, God uses the gospel message to grow the church. The sermon is done, and here we see the responses to this beautiful gospel message. Some reject, some believe, but you'll notice that God uses both to grow the church. Because of the rejection, there's persecution, and the believers have to leave the city, and the gospel goes to a new place where they receive it. And those who believe, we read, are encouraged, they grow, they experience gladness and joy in the Holy Spirit. So verse 42 The crowd breaks up. They leave the synagogue. The Gentiles beg that some of these words would be preached to them the next Sabbath. For whatever reason, that group is a little more interested in what Paul has to say. But I think even this is a form of rejection because it's not, tell us more now. It's, uh, we'll hear you again next Sabbath. Tell us more about this. It's a delay. It's a form of rejection. So they leave, aha, verse 43, there are some who believe. Some of the Jews and proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who speaking to them persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. Ah, the gospel is there. These have trusted in Jesus and they're following Paul and Barnabas. They want to know more immediately. Paul instructs them, oh, keep leaning on the grace of God. Isn't that the Christian life? Continue in the grace of God. So he tells them to do just that in verse 43. Well, the next Sabbath comes. This sermon of Paul is a bit shorter, but it is indeed another sermon. Two sermons in one Sunday morning. You guys are doing great. (laughs) Didn't expect that, did you? In verse 44, it's the next Sabbath, they come to hear the word of God, and the Jews saw the multitudes, they're filled with envy. Word has spread, I think, from those who did believe in Jesus. Guys, Jesus is the Messiah, you've got to hear this. And so Luke summarizes and actually kind of makes, an, you know, not an exaggeration, but hyperbole here, the, the whole town comes. It was as if, if everybody left their house to hear the message of Paul and Barnabas, the Jews who are rejecting it, become envious. No, we're, we're the religion in town, not this Jesus. So they begin resisting and even blaspheming, verse 45. Paul and Barnabas are bold, and now speaking directly to the Jews, they say to them, it's necessary that the word of God be spoken to you. I think this goes all the way back to the promise of Abraham. That God would bless the people of Israel. God would bless Abraham. But the promise doesn't end with that. It says, through you all nations would be blessed. So sure, it comes to the Jews first. But by their rejection, the gospel explodes to all people. And so Paul says, honestly, you have declared yourselves unworthy of everlasting life. Why? Because they rejected the only Savior. So they bring the message to the Gentiles. They say, even this rejection was predicted by God. God planned the message to go to the Gentiles from all along. Look at verse 47, where Paul quotes from Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6, where God speaks of the Messiah, that the the Messiah would be a light, not only to the people of Israel, but to all nations. To the ends of the earth, God would declare His salvation. 
And so this is exactly as God predicted. Even their rejection is a part of the spreading of the gospel. The Gentiles hear this and they believe, verse 48, they're glad. They glorify what? The word of the Lord, the message of salvation, the gospel. And as many has been appointed to eternal life believe. There, Luke is highlighting for us again the sovereignty of God. God knew exactly who would reject the message of the gospel and he knew exactly who would believe the message of the gospel and those appointed to eternal life believe. And verse 49 is a beautiful summary. The word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region. Even the rejection results in the growth of the church. That's the power of God in the gospel. But not only that, verse 50, there's more rejection. The Jews stir up uh, problems, trouble in the city. Devout and prominent women and the chief men come up against Paul and Barnabas. They persecute them and expel them from the region. Verse 51, Paul and Barnabas follow the instructions of the Lord Jesus Christ. They shake off the dust from their feet. Jesus commanded them actually to do this in Luke chapter 9 verse 5 as a way of signifying to that region, we've shared the gospel. You've rejected it. We're leaving behind even the little bits of dust on our sandals. You're now accountable to God. You've heard And it's on you so that the disciples could move on in clear conscience. And so they do. They leave. They go on. And they go to the region of Iconium. We'll read about Iconium, Lord willing, next week. Luke's summary in verse 52. The disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. God grows the church through the message of Jesus Christ, the gospel, that he died for sinners and rose again. And even if some reject it, God uses even that to grow the church. And those who believe, God uses that to grow the church. And those who keep walking in the truth of the gospel continue to grow spiritually. And as we read here, these followers are filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. While we were in Brazil, I experienced a brief bout of what I think was food poisoning. Ate something that didn't sit well. And uh, for the whole like tw- next 24 hours, I was just weak. You ever experienced that before? Uh, where, you know, whether it's through lack of nutrients or whatever it was, fighting a virus. I mean, uh, we went through the day. Carrie uh, was my witness to this. It just, I was just kind of like, you know, dragging my feet everywhere. It's just like all my strength was gone. And everything I normally could do is just, you know, I just didn't have the strength to do it. It was just enough to get through the day, keep myself awake, right, and move on. Why? A lack of nutrients, a lack of nourishment, a lack of strength is what is the result. We don't eat enough. We don't have strength. Our body's fighting something like that, doesn't have the nutrients it needs. We don't have strength. It's often true in the Christian life. The gospel almost being that primary nutrients we need to have strength in the Christian life. To live and to grow in the body of Christ. So as we think of some final application questions. Number one, how are you responding to the gospel If you think your rejection of the gospel or your rejection of God is somehow harming the church or harming God, you're frustrated and so you say, okay, that's enough, I'll be an atheist or I'm not going to believe in Christ and you think you can somehow harm God in this way, this text is proof. You can't stop the power of the gospel. So why resist trust in the work of God for you. I wonder if we're sharing the gospel. If we know that this is how God builds his church, are we a people who are consumed with this passion to tell the gospel to those around us? That our lives would revolve around that task, the reason we're still here. Are we a people who spread the gospel. Are we a people who are growing in the gospel? 
experiencing joy and gladness through the presence of the Holy Spirit like we see in these believers here. You see, the gospel changes the way we view ourselves. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You are secure. You don't have to worry about what God thinks of you. The weight of earning your righteousness is taken off your shoulders. Now, in gratitude, you are free to live for Jesus. You have forever been treated better than you deserve. And so your life is filled with gratitude and joy. You have God's Spirit and therefore the power to say no to sin and to live for God. But the gospel also changes the way we relate to others. Other people are souls in need of a Savior. Souls for whom Christ died. We're ready to forgive others because God in Christ has forgiven me. We're ready to be patient with difficult people because God has been patient with me. We're ready to bless those who persecute us like our memory verse reminded us this week. Why? Because God blessed me when I was still His enemy. We're humble to receive correction because we've already confessed our sin and are secure in Christ and in God's love. We can be kind and gracious because God has been kind and gracious to us. Our lives overflow with love for others no matter how they treat us because God's love is abounding in my life, especially when I don't deserve it. These are gospel truths. And they shape the way we view ourselves and the way we view others. So friend, what's your trouble today? Is it anger? Lean into the truth of the gospel that reminds you that every act of God, everything He's allowed in your life is part of His love and goodness toward you. Is it bitterness? Lean into the truth of the gospel and remember that you can forgive and in fact must forgive because God has forgiven you. Is it discouragement? Return to the truth of the gospel and find hope in the one who died for you and rose again. Is it lack of joy? Return to the truth of the gospel and remember that in Christ you are forever treated better than you deserve. And in Christ, with His Holy Spirit, you have all you need for this life and eternity. God grows His church through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for this rich, rich truth. We thank You that You came to us In the person of your Son, Jesus Christ. And while we were yet sinners, He died for us. Offering His life in our place. The perfect sacrifice. Conquering our sin and death. The perfect Savior. May our lives be transformed by the gospel. May we be a church centered on these truths about Jesus Christ where It shapes the way we view ourselves, the way we view each other, the way we view this world. May everything in our thoughts and actions reflect the powerful truths of the gospel and what Jesus Christ has done for us. We pray in His name. Amen.